Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today I have a fun, funny, entertaining, interesting interview with actor Ben Schwartz, who is working a lot these days, um, which is good because he's good and funny and entertaining and a good podcast guest as well. He's one of the stars of After Party. That's a new Apple TV show. Plus he's in a Netflix show. Plus he's the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog. So he's going to be in movie theaters all across the country this spring. He's very smart, very insightful about how Hollywood works in the age of streaming, about how to break into Hollywood, how he used digital and specifically YouTube to do that in its early days to launch his own career. Um, I was very entertained by this conversation. I think you will be as well. But first, last week I told you we'd come back to the Jeff Zucker CNN Warner Media story. And we're going to do that right now. I brought in Puck's Dylan Byers, who loves writing and reporting about the machinations inside big TV networks and who used to work at CNN himself. We talked about what really happened last week and what we thinks really happened last week to Jeff Zucker and Jason Kyler and Warner Media. Um, it's quite a tangled web, or maybe a very simple, easy to understand web. We get into all of that, um, as well as what is going to happen next at CNN. So now here's me and Dylan Byers. I'm talking to Dylan Byers from Puck, who is going to give us the latest on Jeff Zucker, CNN, Warner Media, Discovery. First, a quick disclosure. Vox Media has sold a TV show to CNN based on the Land of the Giants podcast series that I worked on. And I got to work on that show as well. And you'll be able to see it on CNN Plus, And I think eventually on regular old CNN as well. So now we are disclosed and I guess self-promoted as well. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you. This would be a good time for me to disclose that I worked at CNN for three years. Good, good. Um, I've watched <laughs> CNN as well. So now we're overly <laughs> disclosed. Uh, first question for you, Jeff Zucker or Jeff Zucker? I have heard his own, his own anchors pronounce his name multiple ways. How, what do you go with? I just call him Zucker. Good. And I'm going to, for the sake of consistency, I'm just going to stick with Zucker. Good. Done. So, Dylan, a week ago, uh, Jeff Zucker, who ran CNN, seemed poised to take a much bigger job in the near future, was forced to resign. He said that was because he had not disclosed he was romantically involved with an executive who worked for him. That was a week ago. What has happened since? First and most audibly, I think, a lot of grief and anger and frustration among CNN staff. And I think that I've covered media now for a little over a decade, and never have I seen such a widespread and pervasive sense of anger, angst, uh, and and really love for a leader who left. And, and I think that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about Jeff Zucker and outside of CNN. And, you know, did he did he play too big of a role in elevating Donald Trump at, at when he was at NBC and then again during the Trump candidacy as the president of CNN? Did he make short term plays for ratings that sacrifice the integrity of the CNN brand? There's a lot of criticism out there 
But I, what I will tell you is that for just whatever his successes and failures may have been, the overwhelming love for him inside of that building is very palpable. And there's really a sense of a, a, a team of people, certainly among the senior level on-air talent, senior level producers and senior level executives who feel like they have lost a once-in-a-generation leader uh, and are extremely frustrated with the Warner Media leadership for uh, so abruptly and mercilessly kicking him out of the building. Uh, so that's what's happening inside uh, CNN. Meanwhile, the larger sort of business picture here, the the Warner Media Discovery merger proceeds apace. It has now been given the okay. Uh, uh, by uh, regulators in Washington. It will close at some point this spring, and then it will fall to David Zaslav at at what will be Warner Brothers Discovery to decide who he wants to put in in Jeff Zucker's chair. And so in the meantime, there's going to be a great deal of that anger and angst, but also a great deal of anxiety about what comes next for CNN among the CNN staff who really don't feel like they've been given, in addition to having not been given an answer about what happened or more details about what happened, they also don't really feel like they understand where the company is going to head under this new ownership. You have nicely set me up because I wanted to talk to you about everything you just mentioned. So let's start with 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 the not getting answers part. Um, you've reported on, on now multiple meetings um, that CNN anchors and talent have had with Jason Kyler. Um, and in which they basically have gotten no answers from what I can tell. And they just sort of, and I've, I've talked to Jason Kyler many times and when he doesn't want to tell you something, you cannot make him tell you something, uh, no. which is very frustrating as a journalist, uh, whether you're doing it on a podcast or a stage or in a closed room. Um, but normally in a story like this, when a story like this breaks, there's a predictable pattern. There is an official statement and then the two or more sides in the dispute or controversy tell their version of the story via leaks and proxies through people like you and me. They say, this is what really happened. And we haven't had that. There is no Jeff Zucker version of here's what the real story is. And there's no Warner Media version of here's why we really had to push him out or let him go. Um, First of all, why do you think we haven't gotten more messaging slash reporting about the actual story here? It's a really good question, and, and as you, I'm sure you've noticed, and as I've noticed, and anyone paying attention has noticed, in in the absence of greater explanations for what happened, there has been a lot of theorizing, a lot of conspiratorial thinking. But I I actually think that the what we have, what we actually know, is is plausible enough and very likely what happened, which is Jason Kylar and Jeff Zucker never got along never liked each other, made attempts to undermine one another during the time that Jason was Warner Media CEO and Jeff was head of CNN. Jeff was, in fact, ready to leave the company because he felt like he he didn't like working under Jason. And during the course of this investigation into Chris Cuomo and Chris Cuomo's relationship with his brother and whether or not how much he helped his brother... They look into the the investigators look into Jeff Zucker and his relationship with Allison Gallist, his number two, his you know uh, closest confidant, consigliere, and they say, "Is your is the, the nature of your relationship romantic?" 
um, and Jeff and Allison say yes, and they hadn't disclosed it. And so the effect is that in in other circumstances, working for other people, a different head of Warner Media or a different head of AT&T might have found a way to penalize Jeff without forcing him out of the company. But that was not the nature of the dynamic between Jason and Jeff. And so Jeff basically hands Jason a loaded gun, and Jason, having no sympathy for Jeff, decides to fire it. By the way, and John Stanky, the head of AT&T, lets him fire it because John Stanky has exactly one goal right now, which is to offload the Warner Media asset to Discovery, to David Zaslav, and then get the hell out of the media business. Yeah, he doesn't. He does not care what happens to CNN or anything else under Warner Media. Um, that that part's straightforward. Yeah, and so I think that when you know it's like, well, why why won't Jeff say more? Well, arguably, you know, Jeff has said everything that happened, which is he disclosed that there was a relationship here, and that he had not disclosed it when he should have. And if Jason's not saying more, a lot of people read into that as, well, Jeff must have been guilty of some other sin. Maybe he was advising Governor Andrew Cuomo the way that Chris Cuomo was. Maybe that's not. Maybe the reason Jason isn't saying more is because what happened is what happened, and that's it. And he is doesn't look particularly good right now in the eyes of the 5000 people who work at CNN who are really upset about the fact that Jeff Zucker's no longer at the company and so look it could there be more here absolutely and in fact i think even the jeff zucker camp and the people in his orbit believe that you know maybe John Malone, the big shareholder in Discovery, yeah. who has criticized CNN, didn't want Jeff in that chair. Th- th- there could be some machinations there that we don't know about yet. But I actually think what we have in terms of how this went down is plausible enough and, and may very well just be what happened. So let's let's stipulate that Occam's Razor states that the thing that everyone said it happened is what happened. There's a version of that. But I don't believe that. I don't believe any of the notes that Jeff Zucker or Allison Golis put out about the relationship uh, uh, transforming in recent years. They have a well-documented relationship over a long period of time. It was the definition of an open secret that they were together. Um, and I don't know about what the I, I, I'm less interested in conspiracy theories about John Malone or anything like that. I just refuse to believe or find it hard to believe that Jason Kyler, who um certainly has flaws and has 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 guessed wrong on some stuff and, and we saw him mishandle in some ways the uh the rollout of his move to to make all his movies streaming last year ended up infuriating all of hollywood temporarily that he wouldn't have anticipated what this would do to cnn as an asset that's something he still has to run for some period of time and also just professionally he's going to do something else after this to be seen as a guy who who kneecapped or decapitated, pick your metaphor, an organization out of personal peak. Um, that I find very hard to believe. And so I'm just assuming that there is some other thing that Jason Kyler believes that Jeff Zucker has done that is not appropriate. Um, and that it's just it's more than it's more than not disclosing something at a, at a given time. But we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But let's think about it this way. Like what happened in Hollywood, what if Jason Kyler made what was arguably the right decision and mm-hmm. he didn't sell it the right way? 
<laughs> right? Which yeah, is no, no. To say I can that- see him. I can see him repeating <laughs> the same mistakes. And again, like this, you know, this is a this is an extra weird one because there are personnel issues and privacy issues. Um, and maybe he thinks this is the more dignified way to go. It is hard to believe that he could, he would have thought that he wouldn't have seen what was going to happen. Um, and by the way, you know, in in terms of what's going to happen, I mean, CNN continues to make TV shows, uh, and to run and to run news programming. So it's not like he's, he's, he's stopped CNN from working. Well, and think about, think about what this must look like from Jason Kyler's point of view. He's like... You are a room full of people who tout the integrity mm-hmm. of your journalism, the ethical, you know, that that you that you're like an ethical group of journalists. And he, I'm telling you that this guy violated company policy. He's saying that he violated company policy. And you guys keep asking me why I didn't make allowances for him. I mean, there was literally someone in a meeting this week who said to him, "Should you have effectively should you have protected Jeff Zucker because of how valuable he is to the company. And so while I sympathize with those very real and widespread emotions among the CNN talent, there is also a part of this from Jason Geiler's point of view where you have to be like, guys, I did the I did the thing that was I, I made the ethical choice. Mm-hmm. I just think the disconnect here is I think a lot of people are feeling like there was not necessarily a personal motivation to get rid of Jeff. But but a lack of sympathy that might have pursued a more dignified exit for him. Okay, we don't know. So rather than having two dudes speculate about things we don't know about, we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll move on to some stuff you know a lot about. I'm hoping you can explain to us that level of of it's not just affection, right? The fierce loyalty that his team had for him. Um, and again, these are people who are the the most successful people in his org right the, the the highest paid talent on air highest ranking executives who've been talking to people like yourself it's i've had bosses i like a lot i've had bosses i don't like i can't imagine doing what don lemon did last week and going on air tearful um talking about what jeff zucker did for the entire country um can you sort of explain why they have such passion for for Jeff Zucker and 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 also now if they're acknowledging sort of the criticism they're getting for what seems to be sort of a uh, bizarre overreaction to a very rich guy losing his job? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple things. One is there are a lot of people there who he hired and turned into stars. There are a lot of people Mm -hmm. who were there, but who he cultivated and nurtured. Um, There were a lot of, you know, I think Jeff values loyalty. And so I think once he bets on you as, as, as talent, he sort of invests in you and that doesn't go away. Uh, And I, I think all of that's true. But then I also think a couple other things, which are one, the fact that he was so much in the trenches with the journalists, right? thinking about programming decisions, you know, holding a morning meeting every morning that was open to everyone and very much you know, anytime anyone walked into Jeff's office, no matter where they were in the organization, he made them feel like they were a valued part of the company, which is actually rarer than you would think in in media organizations where there are thousands and thousands of people. And very, very hands-on in programming, right? Very, I mean, ha- extremely hands-on. Much more so than a traditional TV executive might be. That's right. And then I think there are two other factors that endear the CNN staff to Jeff even more so, which are, one, 
they get taken over by uh, AT&T. And there is a sense, you know, what are these guys in Dallas who have no experience in the media industry going to do with us? And Jeff's like, forget about those guys. I've got your back. I think that helps a lot. And then I think, too, this whole stuff with the Trump thing, you know, there was a very real feeling among a lot of the people at CNN who covered the Trump administration um, that they were vulnerable and that they were targets of that sort of anti-media fervor. And I think Jeff always made them feel like he had their backs and he was going to stand up for them. And so, you know, I just think at most big television news media organizations, there's a disconnect between the people who go on air and the people who make the shows and the person who's sitting in the corner office leading them. And in Jeff's case, it was very much a feeling like he was like the captain of the ship. He was in the trenches with them. And I think that that, you know, and he defended their, you know, them being on their shows, even if the ratings weren't great. And so I just think there was a lot of love for him and a feeling like he really he really cared about what they were doing. And again, like I said, I haven't seen that with anyone else who has left, retired, resigned, been kicked out of of a media company in the last decade. And have you heard from anyone saying, "All right, we went a little over the top. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta reconcile the fact that that the the people that we're broadcasting to uh, don't have the same affection for Jeff Zucker that we do, and 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 a lot of them just have bosses that they tolerate, and we should stop carrying on like he's JFK." Yeah, I you know I haven't, and I do think it's a blind spot for them because the as I as I listen to the recordings that I've been getting of these meetings. It is just getting a little bit more and more ridiculous in terms of how much they are willing to set aside those sort of ethical or journalistic standards and and just talk about a guy that they love so much. And you're right. CNN, as the interim leadership keeps trying to remind people at CNN, CNN is a bigger brand than any one person. It's bigger than Jeff Sucker. And it needs to go on and continue to do it, you know, to to report the news and, and be the business that it is. And I think that in terms of how those CNN journalists appear to the Americans who watch the channel, they would do well to just get about the business of doing their jobs. Right. Presumably the 99% of CNN's viewers could not identify Jeff Sucker. Although he was more recognizable to to a, a politically engaged American public than your average media leader sure. because, of, sure. because of his role in the, with the Trump stuff. Yep. Uh, let's spin this forward. Uh, as you said, Warner Media has now got the go-ahead to to merge with Discovery. Um, that is coming. CNN Plus, which we mentioned at the top of the show, is launching. There's interim leaders in the very near future. Everyone just does their job. What what is the leading speculation about what David Zaslav does with CNN once he owns this thing? There was a report in CNBC uh, a couple days ago suggesting actually maybe he doesn't really love CNN Plus. Uh, so maybe that's not something he wants to invest nearly as much uh, energy and time in as Jeff Zucker had. What's what's the what's the informed speculation about CNN six months from now, a year from now, under as part of what is it, Discovery Warner Media, Warner Media Discovery? Warner Bro- yeah, Warner Brothers Discovery. Warner Brothers Discovery just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I think they'll go WBD for shorthand. First of all, caveat: I don't know exactly what David Zaslav wants mm-hmm. um, because he hasn't told me. Uh, but I I can surmise a few things, which are. I think he recognizes that the value of CNN in the larger Warner Brothers Discovery portfolio, the the streaming offering that they have, whether they call that HBO Max, Discovery Plus, something else, is CNN as something that is synonymous with news, that is ability that that is 
um, relatively impartial and nonpartisan and credible, has a reputation for integrity, and can go is one of the only companies, probably the only company, with the exception of maybe the BBC, that can go live from anywhere around the world when a bomb goes off, when a war starts, when an insurrection happens. And that's the value add. Because if you're signing up for a streaming service, you want to have, in addition to all of that entertainment and the sports, you want to know that when you actually need the news, which is not all the time, but occasionally, that you, that there's something there that's reputable. Yeah, may, maybe, by the way, this is what everyone in news thinks. I don't know if, if actual people who pay for streaming services think that, but we'll find out. But We'll on. find out. We'll find out. But then I think that there is a... Look, I you know, does Je- does David Zaslav care about CNN Plus? I think he is interested in the news offering, and I think that the investments that CNN has been making in terms of these sort of lifestyle shows for CNN Plus, yeah. like Cooking Show with Allison Roman, uh, Travel Show in Mexico with Eva Longoria, the stuff that sort of started at CNN with that with the Anthony Bourdain show about a decade ago, that that is actually something that fits very elegantly and seamlessly into the portfolio of entertainment offerings that Warner Brothers Discovery has. So I I think when I look at that CNBC report, I think it's not, does David Zaslav not like CNN Plus? I think it's, does he want CNN Plus to be a standalone offering or does he want it to sort of fit in as just a part of the larger streaming offering? And it could be both. But I I think my, my interpretation based off of what I know about how he's thinking is that there is a place for news in the Warner Brothers Discovery portfolio, and that will be CNN, and that will not look terribly dissimilar from what CNN has been since its inception. Yeah. I mean, they're clearly going to have one big mega subscription bundle, right, at some point, um, whether it's whether it's, you know, you pay 20 bucks a month and you get a Discovery app and an HBO Max app and a CNN app or they're all merged together. That's the play is is some version of that, plus milking the existing linear networks. And and is there any any guessing about who might run CNN? Yeah. And I actually wrote a piece about this recently and all of the names, none of them are satisfactory because Jeff Zucker, Phil, he checked a lot of boxes, and and it gives you some insight into what it takes to run CNN, which is you 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 have to understand a legacy linear TV model. You have to have an at least some sort of appetite or aptitude for the digital streaming future. You have to be a programmer at heart in in terms of you know being able to think about how what the product is going to look like on a day-to-day basis be a businessman and understand you know have the ability to negotiate business deals to acquire talent and then of course his probably his strongest suit which is earning the loyalty of your talent um there are a number of people who have worked in legacy media the ben sherwoods the david rhodes who check some of those boxes there are insiders at CNN, none of the interim leadership, but guys like Andrew Morse, who at least have the digital piece of it, if not the other pieces. Uh, the most sort of fun and controversial name that's come up in my reporting is Jay Suris, who's the head of the United Talent Agency, and he is the agent for most of CNN's star talent. He has <laughs> the loyalty of the staff. There are a lot of people there who have told me they would like to see him in that role. Uh, whether or not David Zaslav wants to put a talent agent at the head of CNN, I don't know. But his name is certainly in the mix now. But none of these people check all of the boxes that Jeff Zucker checked. And I think that is the problem. And that's why it's so hard to determine who the next leader of CNN is going to be. But what I do know as of today is that 
that leader will be announced no later than the close of the merger and perhaps a few weeks beforehand. Uh, And maybe we'll have you back on to talk about it then. Dylan Byers from Puck, thanks for your time. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Dylan. In a minute, we are going to hear from Ben Schwartz. But first, a word from a sponsor. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me. That's terrible. This is Recode Media. No, don't do another. You have to keep it in. When don't everybody needs to know what you just did. This is full improv. I'm Peter Kafka. This is my terribly produced show that I make, and uh, this is all terrible. It's all going to go in them. I'm Peter Kafka, and I'm talking to Ben Schwartz, who's very nimble. If you have watched TV, seen a movie looked at a phone or computer screen, you have seen him somewhere. Uh, you probably know him as John Raffio from Parks and Rec. A lot of you know him as the voice of Sonic, um, and now Sonic 2 coming out very soon. Uh, he's one of my favorite podcast guests on my favorite mm. podcast. Welcome. How are you? What, wow, that's a lot of pressure to say one of my favorite podcast guests, and then now he's on yours, so all I could do is disappoint. Yeah, well, we're not going to do a solo bolo, which is a very, very <laughs> podcast comedy nerd insidery reference. Yes. Um, seven people just went crazy. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a pretty uh, that's a comedy bang bang reference, um, mm-hmm. which I brought up before. I like the show a lot. I'm delighted to have you on. You've got multiple projects coming out in the very near future. In fact, I think when people hear this, one of them will already be out. Uh, okay. That's the after party on Apple TV. You got Sonic 2 coming out in the spring. You've got a second season of the Netflix show Space Force. Nicely done. With a question mark. Thank you. I have notes, but sometimes I sometimes I forget to look at them. Um, is this a fluke that you've got three things coming out in, in one go? Did you did you mastermind this? Is this pandemic? I wish I masterminded. I almost wish I had the opposite where while After Party is still having new episodes, After Party uh, uh, Space Force premieres, I almost wish there was a little bit of space. Uh, so it's not just like a lot of me, a lot of a lot of a Jewish Muppet really quick for a short spurt and then like a time off. But I'm psyched, man. They're all like, uh, so, I'm so excited by all of them. And After Party comes out the 28th. So I guess it will have just came out uh, before this airs. Yeah, we're recording this in the past. You're listening to it in the future. You may even be able, maybe a couple weeks into this. Explain what After Party is. It's a, a little from a little company called Apple, so not a lot of folks are going to get a chance to see it. But if they if they have Apple TV somehow, sure. What is the show? Or just like you said, we're in the past. If you can get in the past about twenty years and invest in Apple, it's a it would be a great investment twenty years ago. I think Peter, right? Mm-hmm. I'm okay. Nodding. Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Oh, you're not allowed to say anything. It's probably illegal for your <laughs> podcast. Don't um, don't invest in sh- Apple in the past. Oh, this is this is the show. Uh, it's a whodunit. It's a Rushamon type comedy. Lord and Miller uh, did it. Who have done things like Spider Verse and Twenty One Jump Street and Lego Movie. And what it is is that every uh, s- someone dies. Dave Franco plays a character who dies who gets murdered. At, uh, it's a high school reunion. There's an after party for that high school reunion. Someone gets murdered. The detective comes in. That's Tiffany Haddish. And each episode, she interviews one of the suspects. And it's Sam Richardson, me, Alana Glazer, Jamie Dimitriou, Zoe Chow. It's all some of the funniest human beings in the world, especially if you're an alt comedy fan. Then it's like, you know, the people that I've been watching like crazy. Ike Barinholtz is there, Dave Franco, John Early, who's brilliant. Um, so every uh, episode, she interviews one of us. And upon retelling what happened that night, it's a different genre of film. So Sam is the romantic. So his is shot like romantic comedy. Uh, I in it love music. So mine is shot like a musical. Um, so that's it. And it's it's kind of hilarious and fun. And if you really pay attention, you can try to find out who uh, the killer is throughout. So it's it's everything I want in a TV show. 
it's family friendly-ish, I think. I was I, I've watched the first three, and it seemed like I could show my kids it. They're they're eleven and thirteen. They, like, my kids are three years six. old. I could probably show them this, right? Uh, yeah, I think I think you I think Apple does a good job of making things pretty family friendly. Yeah, and I did. Did you know that if you hold up, I don't know if it's true. You tell me. If you make something for Apple and or you hold up an iPhone in a TV show or movie, that means that your character cannot be the bad guy or the killer. <laughs> Is that true? It's what I read on the internet. Oh no! Uh, I have to rewatch Ryan the show. Johnson said it. Yeah, I'm gonna see who, um, who the kill. I well, I know who the killer is in our show, but now I'm gonna watch that person the whole time to see if they ever pick up a phone. That's so interesting. Well, Sam Richardson is holding an iPhone at the very beginning, so I'm crossing him off the list. I well, I'm finished. holding up an iPhone. Well, I guess I shouldn't be talking about this, but let, yeah. let's let's see what let's. Uh, oh, I can't wait to rewatch this show and see if that's a thing. So I have, I have to do some obligatory stuff about making a TV show for Apple. Is it? And this is, I think, a Sony production, right? So Sony this is a Sony production. Producer. So we got a lot of big names in here. Any sense that making a show for Apple? You've done Netflix. Uh, you've done traditional TV. That I've is, done all the streamers. You've done all the streamers. Is, is this in any way different, or is it TV is TV, and it doesn't matter if it's streaming or on linear? Well, it was unique in this much. It was that, uh, first of all, Lord Miller, geniuses, Chris Lord is the person who created the idea and directed every single episode, which up until that moment, I've never been on a show where the whole series is directed by one person. Um, but because of COVID, there weren't, people weren't really allowed on set. So Apple couldn't come on set because it, we shot it in the end of 2020. So it was before vaccines were out yet and all those things. So the um, I, I didn't get to see the, the firsthand look of what Apple... Uh, was doing there. But it, to be honest, and I've worked with Apple a couple times and I may be working with them in the future on something. Um, it was lovely and felt like it was free and felt like free as in like you have freedom to play because we really got to go. And in some cases, they were able to really invest in the show. Um, so it seems like they're taking care of us. And it seems like the shows that, you know, when they when they make something, they, they try to support it, um, which I think is big. I think in terms of all the different streamer stuff I've done, it's like, Getting the money to actually make it, but then also seeing if they will support by putting out billboards and telling people about it. Because mm-hmm. I feel like so many shows nowadays are word of mouth. Like Squid Game all of a sudden blew up. And Stranger Things wasn't supposed to be that huge of a deal. And then through word of mouth, it blew up. Um, so yeah, I, I, they, they've been taking care of us pretty pretty well. And, and you said you've made it during COVID. I think you made a couple things during COVID, right? Because Sonic 2, you must have made during COVID. I did. And I sold a couple scripts during COVID. I wrote a lot during COVID. So when you're on set making a show during COVID, end of 2020, that must feel radically different than under normal circumstances. Or or, or was it sort of back to normal-ish? No, I guess not. PK. A lot of people call you PK on this, right? A lot of people they call do. you PK? They do. Uh, PDKs. Th- this is this is uh this is one of the unique things about it is that at the time I had been you know quarantined with my girlfriend for a couple months and then we went on set and it was the first human beings I was around. And I got to like, there's a scene where I hug Sam, Sam Richardson and it was the first person I'd hugged in months outside of my girlfriend. And it was such an emotional feeling. It was, it was so crazy to not have contact or show emotion or connect with someone on a, on a person-to-person thing. So the show gave us that, which is amazing, in a safe way. We were tested twice a day sometimes. Um, but yes, there are a lot of things that were different. Everybody's wearing masks. And then only until they say action, were we allowed to take off our masks, but even harder, the crew and the camera people and a wonderful a camera operator named Neil, who has a steady cam, which is an incredibly, it's a device that holds your camera. He has to wear a mask and a face shield. And 
So they're lugging around all this equipment and working uh, insane hours and everybody adapted and we felt so lucky to be making something because we had been off for so long. The idea that, oh, we get to do this, you just you just realize how lucky we all are. And Sonic 2 is voice acting for you. I haven't I saw Sonic 1. I don't remember you actually showing up on camera, but but uh, I play I'm in I that's me. Did you Sonic. show up on camera? I I'm like every in the background of every scene, Peter, I go, "Oh, hello." for the entire <laughs> thing. Uh, you must not have watched so, it closely. I I did doze off a little bit, but it was a it was an early matinee. I'd been up late before. It was like the last thing I saw pre-COVID was was. Sonic I know it's very exciting. At that the Mall of America, February twenty twenty. Mall of America in Minnesota. In Minnesota, is that where you are? Uh, it's where I'm where I'm from. So I, oh. I think it's a good idea to bring my kids to Minnesota in February. Randomly big comedy scene in Minnesota. A little bit, yeah. I yeah. know a bunch of improvisers that came from there. We could we could we could compare notes afterwards. Um. So, but so it was making the the Sonic Two voiceover work. Is that any different in a pandemic, or is that the same? Not really. The you know not 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 really. Just you know, mask in, mask out. Different precautions. You get tested maybe the day before. Nobody's allowed in the room. You have to spray. You have to wait a certain amount of time between people. So this they've put in COVID precautions for everything now. So um, there and then there's HIPAA filters there and stuff like that. But the yeah. best part is voiceover. I'm always by myself in a room. So that is pretty hard to get messed with. The only thing I lose is in the other room is usually the director and the producer. Jeff Fowler's there and Toby's there. And um, that is now all Zoom. A lot of things, has, a lot of things. just like when I pitched my TV shows and movies, now it's all Zoom. Now it's same with that. If if it's not a necessity for, for them to be in the room for safety, they're just through Zoom and doing the whole thing. I was going to ask, because you co-starred with Jim Carrey, did you get to be in the same booth at the same time with him? Or was all he did, he did his stuff and you did your stuff? That's right. He does his stuff. Then I see the I see the footage of what he did. And then I do lines to his footage. So it's mm-hmm. like I do my lines. It's almost like my scene partner is the movie screen. Uh, when yep. I'm doing ADR and I'm doing all my lines there. But I have a script and oftentimes I'll do my whole script beforehand. I know in the first one, you know, they would play it so everybody knows what's going on. And in the second one, they kind of filmed it and then they bring it to me and then we do my lines. But I did get to meet him. I don't know how old you are, but he's like, for me, he's the guy. When I was a kid, he's the guy. You know, Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber and The Mask are like, that's how I fell in love with comedy. So I just turned my kids on to, to, to him recently, and then I realized, oh, you actually can't show them Ace Ventura anymore. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. the end of that movie is 100% not acceptable. Of course, of course. And by the way, I wonder how many movies in the 90s, if we watched them now, would not be PC at all. I'm sure there's a handful. I'm sure there's a bunch, a bunch from the 70s. There's a bunch of the ones that I grew up with you can't watch, but that one was extreme because I didn't remember that being... The major plot point, um, and I'm just going to save myself some trouble now. And if you want to look into it, you can look into it on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done a bunch of voice work, right? You did, I think, yeah. DuckTales. And then explain explain your connection to the Star Wars universe. You are BB-8 or you're not BB-8? Oh, how cool. Just to say you are BB-8. So I started doing voiceover work in 2004 by trying to do commercials and stuff when I was living in New York. And then the first uh, cartoon show or animated show I got was in 2007. So then through then I've done DuckTales. You're right. I play Dewey and DuckTales. I play Leonardo in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which for me as a kid was a big deal. Um, and then I play Sonic, and I played a guy named Randy Cunningham. Um, and I have talked so much that I forgot what your question was, and you're looking at me. Oh, I want, well, two things. I want to know, one about Star Wars and BB-8, but also I just want to know, if once you get known for doing voice work, is there something particular about that skill that's different than 
being a person on camera. Obviously, you do yeah, both. Absolutely. But what's sort of the thing that you're that they want out of you when you're doing voice work that they don't necessarily want? That's a great question. I, I think there's a huge there is a huge difference. I know a lot of great actors that just aren't great at voiceover because you're not acting against anybody oftentimes. And the other thing is the best way in order to be a good voiceover artist, you of course read the material and see, you know, how big you're supposed to get, how small you're supposed to get. But they animate to your voice. The first thing you do is record your lines. Then they give that to these incredible animators. So the more you give them, if I'm like, you know, come over here, guys, let's go. You know, that's different than come over here, guys, let's go. It's like a whole different feel. You could feel the rhythm and the whatever. And also you have the ability within your performance, like to have someone be like so excited and so angry and extend their sense. So you have a lot of ability to like help with what the animation is, which is really exciting. And when you get a great animator, it's heaven because they can animate kind of to your emotions. Um, there is, and, and sometimes it's really hard to do that against nobody because uh, acting is reacting. And oftentimes it's just me alone in the booth. And uh, what I do is I ask the um, voice director or person that's in there, a guy named Sam Regal, who's lovely. I did it for DuckTales. And I would just say, could you just read everybody else's lines so I feel like I'm acting with you? And that was like a huge help for me. Um, and people who are doing VO can always ask for that. And if I go and watch Star Wars, any of the new Star Wars movies, and I see BB-8, that is you or that isn't you? Listen, hard-hitting questions. Um, attack journalism, I'm going to say. Um, you took your gloves off. Uh, this is what happened. So we were- This is we were, This is what it is. Man, I'm sweating. Uh, no, uh, we, uh, JJ, was, JJ Abrams, the prolific filmmaker, was making Star Wars Episode Seven. And um, uh, in it, at the beginning of it, I think Harrison Ford hurt his foot, so they had to shut down production for a little bit. I don't know how big of a Star Wars fan you are, but I remember when that happened. And then JJ called me and he said, hey, um, I'm coming back to LA. I want you to know there's a droid in this movie, and I want the audience to feel the emotion. Anytime he does beeps and boops, I want him to feel the emotion. I want people to know when he's sad. I want people to know when he's happy. I want people to know when he's making jokes. Will you come by? And uh, we'll write lines, and you can do lines like you're the droid. Then we'll send that to ILM, which is, you know, Lucasfilms' Industrial Light Magic. Industrial Light Magic. Yep. And they'll turn it into beeps and boops. So I had lines as BB-8, and then I improvised lines as BB-8. And he would give me footage from the movie. So I was one of the first people ever to see any scene. And then I would do the lines, which, of course, I'm sure there's a cut somewhere with my voice in it, which is which would be insane. But then it sounded like a voice getting turned into... You could hear like, it's like, you know, if I'm like, get out of here, Peter, what are you doing, Peter? You could hear it's like, no, 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 Peter. And it's like, it doesn't really work. So then we tried a synthesizer and then we tried this machine and then we tried that. And then I had to go and he brought Bill Hader in and then Bill Hader finished the job. And then I t I'm telling you, I think at the end, JJ just found like an app on his phone and just did it through the app. Because <laughs> I can't look at the movie and be like, but I will say this, the little Star Wars trivia is uh, I got to play a stormtrooper in that movie. And I got to punch up some jokes. In 7 and 9, I have a couple of jokes in there, which are very exciting. What's your favorite Star Wars joke that you punched up? Uh, a rabbi, a stormtrooper. and No, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> stormtrooper walks like this. Um, what was a good one? Um, oh, there. okay, there's in 9, one of the ones that I like is, so I did, a, I did five, maybe five of my jokes got in for C-3PO. Um, and uh, one of them was like, they all fall through these uh, sand pits. And Oscar Isaac's character is like, are you okay? And Daisy Ruther's like, yeah, are you okay? And then um, uh, John Boyega's character is like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then so my job at that thing was, it was already shot. C-3PO is walking into frame and then lands. And JJ's like, there could be room there for C-3PO to say something. 
uh, look at it and see like that's sometimes I've done that for a bunch of movies, by the way, where it's like sometimes the movie's filmed and they're like, we could use some more jokes. And if it's on someone's back, you can pull it off. Or if it's off camera, right. I can, you know, because I started off as a joke writer. So um, the beat for that was the film is already, the scene is already done. So, and then they just walk. So it's, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Let's go. And then they walk and C-3PO's walking in the background and he goes, nobody asked me, but I'm okay. And like, that's what the little, little, a little like jokey thing at the end, which when you're watching it, then brings a little levity to the scene and sets you up for the next scene. And um, JJ's a genius in that way. He's like, this needs like a little something. And then I would pitch something and uh, a couple of mine got on, which was really uh, exciting. I will tell you when I saw Seven, and my name was there in the scroll with the actual Star Wars music and the font. I teared up like a little baby just from that. Just from I my, bet. I, had, I bet. I had n- barely anything to do with the movie. Barely anything. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. It was such a, I was, I was like a nobody in the movie. And yet I couldn't, I was like the biggest thing. It was so cool. I could do a whole thing about you growing up and. Do it. Star Wars. We have, I don't know how long these usually are, Peter, but I have 40 minutes. We have hours. We have hours. Oh, let's do it. So you mentioned joke writing was your start. How did you break into the business? Um, I start, Okay, so I uh, was a psychology and anthropology major in uh, Union College, which is a college in upstate New York and Schenectady, in New York. Go Dutchman, I guess. And I was in high school. I was too afraid to audition for the musical because I thought I wouldn't get it. And people tell me I'm bad and I was too afraid to fail, which I know that... Your podcast covers a plethora of things and business and tech and all this fun stuff. But the idea of me being afraid to fail at the beginning was a huge deterrent for me. I didn't try things because I didn't want to be bad at it and fail. And then finally, senior year of college, uh, my girlfriend at the time forced me to audition for the improv team. And um, I did it and I got on stage and I got better and I learned that I went to UCB and I kept failing and getting better, taking risks and failing and getting better. Um and stuff like that. And that's kind of how I grew. And my, in my head, your question was, what's your favorite popcorn? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 when did you start getting paid or when did you start realizing, oh, I could actually do this for a living? Okay. Well, those are two very different things. So I was a, so I was a page at Letterman. Uh, didn't know anybody there. I literally just, I went in and I asked if I could interview uh, and I did. And and um, a very serendipitous moment to get me the interview. And then when I was there, I found a way to freelance jokes for David Letterman's monologue. Now, that would entail me having to buy a fax machine. I also remember I don't have any money. Buy a fax machine and every day and buy a phone line because I was only using my cell phone at the time. And then fax jokes in. And I still wouldn't call myself a writer because I didn't get paid. Exactly what you said. Finally, I got my first joke on. It was $75. Uh, so the money always went back to paying for the things that I had to do to, to get it. Um, so I guess th- that was the first writing thing. And then I did it for Weekend Update. And then um, I got a couple jokes on there. And then all of a sudden on my resume, I could say, I've freelanced for these things and I've written jokes for here. And then I started doing commercials. And I was really good at booking commercials and then never airing, which if you know the pay scale of a commercial is... You don't get any money to film it. You get money when it runs. So I never really got all that money that everybody talked about. So I slowly was building my things. And then Parks and Recreation, when I moved to LA, I started making my own films. That was huge. I created a website called rejectedjokes.com. So all my rejected jokes from Letterman SNL, I would perform them on UCB stage in front of nobody. And they would bomb the whole joke where these were rejected. This is why. And then I did my own short films. And then I got Parks and Recreation. That John Ralphio character was like the first time that I was like, oh, there's a shot there's a shot that maybe I could do this. I'm terrified about my next role. Hopefully I get another one. 
But that was the first one where people on the street would come up to me or like people start singing in my ear at bars or something like that. Yeah, I want to talk to you about Parks and Rec in a second, but but go back to, to the internet and YouTube because I think you're maybe one of the first generation of performers that was able to use that stuff That's as right. you were coming up. Um, so what what was it like to put stuff on the internet I think it, I'm assuming like mid twenties, early twenties. Were people watching it? Was it just an exercise in producing and writing and acting? And it didn't matter if people saw it. It was the 1920s, like you explained, right before a big war. The 1920s. Um, the it, it, this is what it was. College humor had was just about to come out. Funnier Die hadn't come out yet, and YouTube was new. So this is in my head, in my business brain. I'm doing shows at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. That means about 90 people, if I sell out, are seeing me once a week. And nobody in LA is seeing me. And nobody in LA can see who I am. So I said, I'm going to find a way to get my content because it wasn't, a th- you're right, it wasn't a big thing yet. I want to get my content out there so any casting director could see me. Or if they're interested in me, I could link them to something. Um, so that's what that rejected joke. So you're not trying to get famous. You're trying to basically put together a reel for people who would hire No, you. because I don't think there there was no such thing as like, uh, I don't think, I honestly don't think anybody should be chasing fame. Because what are you chasing? That's such a it's such like well, a. If you ghost. remember the first few people who were famous at the on the early YouTube, right? Those were all accidental people, right? Oh yeah, the Star Wars kid and yeah, 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 chocolate yeah. rain and, and all that weird stuff. That's exactly right. It was just accidental celebrity, and that type of fame wasn't appetizing to me at, at all. It never is about it for fame. I honestly like, I look at someone who's very very famous, and it would feel. I would hate to change the way that I live my life because paparazzi's outside all the time or this is happening and they feel like they can't really go out. That stuff to me is scary. Like, um, you know, having to worry that you're being chased or followed all the time. That stuff is uh, not upsetting me. But um, you're right. That There wasn't really like uh, internet famous yet. So for me, it was always to try to make content that people could see. And there's a crazy story. So I, I was doing these short, I was doing these um, rejected jokes, uh, right? And they were getting a little bit of whatever. So I'd, I'd, uh, I was like, I'm going to make a short film. So there's this Burger King commercial on at the time where the king, a guy dressed in a king mask, like he, any, something weird would be happening. And then he would come in and, and nod. Super creepy. Yes. Super creepy. And everything was fine. So I did one and I called it cheating where my short film was a wife's husband is gone. A wife is in bed and she's cheating on her husband with this guy. The husband comes inside. I, I'm the guy she was cheating with. I hide in the closet and then he sees my shoes and realizes someone is is there and probably having sex with his wife. And he hears me in the thing. He opens the closet door and I have the burger. I You see me put on the Burger King mask. And he just is confused. And then I'm nodding and everything is fine. And I give him a cheeseburger and I slowly leave. And so I made that. And um, it had rejectedjokes.com because I was like, try to get people to my website. And someone in a different country, this is before I knew how to do this, took took my video um, cut out the bottom part so you couldn't see rejectedjokes.com, put his name in the upper left-hand part, and put it on a website that you got paid for views. And so ah. he and he got 30 million views. So he made thousands and thousands of dollars. I, I had no money at the time. I was scraping by. He made so much money off it, and I finally got the website to stop it and give it to me but it was too late. Everybody had he seen it. He put it on like e-bombs or something, one of those weird He put sites. it, there was, he put, I forget where he put it. I was so upset. And so not only did I not make any money, because I didn't even know that was a thing. The other thing was nobody came to my website, which was the reason, and nobody knew who I was, so they didn't care. Um, so that happened. And then the second short film I did was another take on that type of thing. It was a commercial. It was a core. Remember those Coors Light videos where the train would, it would start snowing and the train would come out of nowhere. 
and like yes. and like it's like people, people all, all over the, the world. world. That's yep. right. So I did one of those where I got the guy from the commercial because I was doing commercials at the time and I met him. I and I CG'd him into the commercial and he comes out. I got him in the same outfit. He comes out and at the beginning it says rejectedjokes.com presents and it says my name on it. He comes out and he smiles and then all of a sudden it starts snowing, but the train hits him. Because in my head, of course, the train's got to hit somebody. It comes out of nowhere and it hits him and he's on the ground crying and it cuts everybody dancing at the party. And then he's like, ah, and that was it. And I got a cease and desist letter from Coors Light telling me to take it down immediately. So so when you when you were doing this, it was still a novelty to like make video and put it on the internet and, and have people be able to reach it. Yeah, it was starting to be a thing. College Humor just came out and Funny or Die had not come out yet, but was about to come out. And um, then I started doing stuff with Funny or Die, uh, with uh, College Humor people, Jake and Amir. And then I started doing stuff with Funny or Die. And then I got paid by TBS to make some of my own short films uh, for a website called Super Deluxe. I remember um, Super Deluxe. Yeah. So it was me, Bob Odenkirk, Eugene Merman. It was a very few people at the beginning. And that's kind of my first content of me learning how to write and uh, act in my own stuff. How do you think things would play out for you if you just move your whole career up to now, except now you have crazy iPhones that have great cameras. It's easy to record. Everyone does video. You've got massive global reach. Your TikTok can go viral overnight. Do, do you be, how does that change? How do you think that changes how you would develop as an actor and comedian and writer and producer? I think that's a great question. So are you basically saying, let's say I was starting my career now instead of back then? What yeah, would and now you have access to all this tech. It's super cheap. You don't have to worry about and you don't have to worry about telling someone how to download something. It's yes. just there. there it, there's almost no excuse now to not make content. I would say I would be, I would feel overwhelmed because there's so much. Um, but the good thing is that anything hits. Also, I would be probably on TikTok all the time because it's such a collaborative field. I'm assuming it's like improv. But it would be intimidating. Back then, it was very few people were making short films for the internet. And now it's like everybody and anybody. And now it's so deep that it's not even like the funniest people win. It's like the weirdest stuff wins. Or like, you know, there's a... The, the algorithm wins, right? They just they just show you stuff and you don't know yeah, why. Yeah. You have to hope that someone passes it around enough where anybody cares. It would be intimidating. But I will say as a comedian coming up, it would we would have just put everything on the internet, every single thing on the internet, and just hope that we got lucky. Do you spend much time on TikTok? Because the thing, I've, I've been spending the last year with it, and it's it's still designed to be repetitive. Like everyone is doing the same thing, and they're doing the same challenge. And at least the stuff that I see often, you know, the, the format and the beats are the same. Um, even if they're not literally the same, it's the same sort of tone. I'm wondering sure. if that would be constricting. If you're like, oh, this is the only way to do TikTok is... This I haven't jumped in. Or... I did one thing solely for TikTok. I was like, I'm going to try one video. And I saw this um, I saw this thing where like Travis Scott got the Travis Scott meal at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so funny. I thought that was so funny. So I went to McDonald's and I made it look like I was ordering the Ben Schwartz meal. And then <laughs> did you see it? Yeah, and I and I edited it together. I, it was real. I really went there and I just edited the audio to make it sound like he was saying, "Yeah, sure," and yeah. then um, uh, and I got it. And then I obviously in my I I took the thing and then when I open it, it was uh, a bun with an Alf card in the middle. It was like a seltzer with no bubbles. <laughs> it was like the most disgusting meal in the world. But that in my head was that, and it went, and it did great. But it, like, took time to think of that stuff and plan it, and and then like I got I got a a bunch of uh, 
interactions or views. I don't know what they're called, but um, it would take a lot of work to like every day try to think of a, f- unless you just like doing a nonsense thing. Yeah. And you have actual work to do. You got movies and TV shows. You mentioned UCB a few times. That's the Upright Citizens Brigade. Explain what that was slash is and, and what that did for you. Okay, so the one of the things, so I was in, so when I first started at UCB, um, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, it's a long form improv theater, and it also does sketch and a little bit of stand up, um, but they're known for long form improv and sketch. So at the beginning, uh, I went and I saw that Amy Poehler came up from there, and Amy Poehler to me is a genius, and so I said, if this is how she came up, she created the theater. Uh, I wanna, I wanna go there. So I took classes there, but I couldn't really afford them, so I got an internship there. So I did the garbage and the recycling, and I helped out uh, with tickets. So I can get free classes. What it was back then on the flyers that I used to give out, it, the quote, the pull quote from Time Out New York was the CBGBs of comedy, which um, I hope people know what CBGBs is, but maybe not anymore. But it's like it's like the all it's like the cool rock club that's not the big one. It's the all the acts would go there though because it's cool. And UCB was the same thing. It was like that alt comedy thing where all of a sudden Tina Fey's in there and then, um, you know, Mike Myers came in and then the entire cast of SNL one day. And then it's just like everybody that you look up to in comedy came down there and performed for free. We all performed for free for years. Um, And it was just like the most creative thing in the universe at the beginning. And that's where I met, you know... um, Adam Pally, and that's where I met Gil Ozeri. That was my first sketch group. That's where I met Thomas Middleditch, where Thomas and I did a lot of improv together. I do something called Ben Schwartz and Friends. I'll say eight out of the 10 people that perform in that are all UCBLA or New York. So it's really, uh, if you look at the cast of people that came out of there, it's all the coolest people. And for that time in Chelsea, those bunch of years were just, it was insane, the talent that went through those doors. I used to go to the ASCAT shows. On that's where I was an nights, intern. I must have given you your I- ticket. Maybe at one point, and I would tell people, like, this is the coolest thing you can do in New York City, and it's either free or $5, and it's insane. That is exactly Um, it. That's the pitch. And the funniest part is it's underneath the supermarket. So even when you're waiting in line, you're like, where are we going? And you go down there, and it smells weird. And then all of a sudden, Amy, Tina, Matt Besser, Jack McBrayer, all these people come out on stage and just give you the best show you've ever seen. It was insanely great, and there was an empire. They they eventually got, had a couple different theaters in New York and a couple in L.A., and then COVID wiped them out. I think one theater still exists. That's exactly right. The one on Franklin, I believe, is still around. When a theater like that is so important and then goes away, what, what fills that void? I mean, we have to do some projection here, but like, do you think something else sprouts up, or do you think the era for that kind of comedy, we, we do something else now? Man, that's a tough question. I really hope that... I really hope that there's a way for UCB to thrive and get out there again. And in a way that feels very 2022 and onward and feels like, you know, everybody's evolving. That would be amazing. But I think so for me, the last couple of years, I moved to a place called Largo. So I I do shows at a place called Largo, which was only stand up and music. And then um, there was one show that was an improvised Shakespeare show. And then me and Thomas, Middleton and Schwartz were the first improv show there. And that's where I did Ben Schwartz and Friends, which is the thing that I'm going to be touring now. And it's like, um, that's where I perform now. So that's become an improv place uh, a little bit. But it's almost a little bit of a higher end because the thing for UCB was it's five bucks or seven bucks. Um, But when you go to a bigger venue that has real cost, uh, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the ticket price has to go up a bit. But my hope is that the people who were taught by UCB will start doing their own little theaters places. And you're getting, I know there's already something called the Dynasty Typewriter Theater. I haven't been there yet, but a lot of uh, improvisers perform there. But you have to assume that the people who love it 
find a way to keep doing it. And the people who were inspired by shows, or maybe they saw Middle Eastern Schwartz on Netflix and they want to do it, they'll find the group of people like at UCB at that time, those were the group of people that like inspired me and we pushed each other to be funny and learn our own voices. And uh, I think you need a community like that to really grow. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think about when I think about every, you know, the, the internet democratizes all this and you can make stuff in your bedroom with a phone and it looks great, but you're not going to have that community. So that's the downside. On the other hand, you don't have to move to New York or LA in theory to make cool stuff. And there's a, there's a pro and a con. Yeah, that's true. The phone really changes everything. I remember Tom Hanks in an interview where he's like, this is all you need. You want to, you can film yourself. You want to act, film yourself right here. You can do it. There's no excuses now. And back then that, I mean, you had to get a camera. You had to, you had to have final cut. You have to know how to use final cut. It was way harder. You mentioned Parks and Rec, the hit broadcast show on TV, network TV, um, and then it has this whole second life on Netflix. What did the what did that feel? Could you feel the difference between having being a guest care being a guest star on a show that's on network TV versus one that's on Netflix? Could you tell how people were reacting to you or recognizing you or or interacting with you? Uh, the same show, but when it changed, mm-hmm. um, it was kids. All of a sudden, kids that were younger. Like, how old are your kids? 11 and 13. So yeah. 11, 13. No joke. Around 14, 15, my friend's kids would then be like, oh my God, you know, John Ralphio? All of a sudden, it's a whole different generation that are watching it. Also, when it was on network, it was after The Office or before The Office. And so, so many people were watching, uh, even though our show was not watched by enough people that every year we thought we were going to get canceled. But it's like... um that out of all the shows, that's the one that still, I've done quite a few things and that's the one that more people than anything else have seen because also on Netflix, they rewatch it over and over again. They find a favorite episode or a favorite character, they rewatch those scenes over and over again. So it's it's like, you know, going to a, a diner and being like, I'll have this and then I'll have this and I'll watch it when I want, I'll do this, which ended up being very um, interesting, but the, it grew exponentially. Um, you just got to get lucky and hope that like you said, the algorithm takes you for a beautiful little ride. Yeah, that's. I assume that it, that it was massive because that's what I've heard anecdotally. People saying, you know, people people who think their show was made by Netflix or is a Netflix original, but actually, you know, it was on AMC. It was called Breaking Bad or whatever it was. Or yes, a whole generation of people who only watch Friends on Netflix, right? Oh my god, that's so funny to think that because also I've just been thinking about this because After Party, the first three episodes, so Space Force, all the episodes come out of one day. After Party, the first three episodes come out. And then once a week, the next episodes come out. And I've been thinking about like those formats and stuff, you know, now that I'm creating a little bit more and I really miss the idea of waiting a week because I talk about, me and you would talk about it, Peter, and be like, oh, what do you think is going to happen next on Breaking Bad? Do you remember this? And it gives each episode time to really be broken down and thought about. And you know what I mean? Um, I understand the Netflix model. I've done so much for Netflix and I love it. I binge stuff like crazy. Um, But... I'm finding it very interesting that now how it's consumed, now you don't really get to concentrate on one episode anymore. You concentrate on the series. You almost talk about the, like, oh, you saw a state, oh, whatever it is, you know, Stranger Things. You kind of talk about the whole thing, what happened, as opposed to, oh my God, episode four when when Ross is yelling, pivot is so funny. You know what I mean? Um, right. Or everyone's saying, oh, did, did Kendall Roy die in that in the next episode of Succession, right? Succession is a perfect example. You picked the perfect example. Every week, I was like, oh my, I cannot wait. And then for that week, I would talk about it with anybody. 
Now, from your point of view, you talk to many, many people. Do you have a preference in the way you consume entertainment? Would you prefer it to be, I want them all right now and let me choose when I see it? Or would you prefer it be weekly? If it's the rare show like Succession where there's so much there and I really do want to like sit with it for a week and think about it and check out multiple podcasts about it, great. And beyond that, I don't really care. A lot of times I'm picking up a show that's aired a season, you know, a year or two ago anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't matter to me. You know, it's it's a handful of shows. It's Succession and live sports where it sort of matters to me that I'm consuming it around the same time as everybody else and the rest of it. And then you said that's your new book, right? Succession and Live Sports? Succession and Live Sports by Peter Kafka. Yeah, that's your new book. All these outlets, you're prolific. You're getting a ton of work. Um, you do a lot of streaming. Do you have a sense that we're in a moment in time now where there's more options than ever before and that won't last? And, and you should hurry up and try to make as much stuff as you can or this is the new normal? This is a great question. I think about this all the time where it's like, I feel so lucky that I have three things that I like coming out. I really like these things. And um, you're right. It's almost like, hey, if anybody offers you a job in these streamers, do you just say yes right now? Or, you know, try to make some money and try to get yourself involved with cool things. I still follow the same kind of rules I did. I mean, listen, when you start off, I'm not saying no to anything. When you start off, there are no no's. You're, you need to say yes to everything. Of course, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, artistic integrity is fantastic. And if something's like terrible, terrible, you'd probably say no, but you need enough money to make your rent. And so you're a working actor or writer. I wrote for, you know, I freelanced for Toy Fair magazine once and Wizard magazine. I, I, I freelanced for SNL. I've, I freelanced anywhere that had me. I did punch-ups on 30 movies, you know, making maybe not much money, very, very little money each time, just like wherever you can grab work, voiceover work. I was a guest star and I've done maybe 300 episodes of voiceover work. Um, as I've gotten older, the things I follow are words. I love a great script. Man, I love a great script. If the script is great, I remember I was very busy once and I got a great short film. It's called I'm a Mitzvah. And I was like, I want to do this. And there's, I don't think there was any money or it was the minimum. And uh, for a week or two, we did that because I thought it was amazing. Directors, Chris Miller, Lord of Miller, whatever they want. They were on the after party. Uh, Chris called me. Said, do you want to, and he, before he finished his sentence, yeah, of course, whatever, anything you want. I find him to be prolific and incredible. And then actors, someone like Don Cheadle's attached, someone like Steve Carell's attached, John Malkovich is attached. I think I can get better at my job. I think I can learn a lot from them. I just want to be around someone that inspires me so much. So one of those three boxes has to be ticked off. If none of them are ticked off, I just won't do it. And if one of them is a huge X, like the actors on it are, I heard bad people or not, whatever. Or if the script is terrible, now I don't say yes. If the director I heard is, going to push you in ways that are not towards making a good movie or just for that person to flex their ego. Like, uh, I don't know about that. So um, I'm more particular now. I will say though, with the influx of streaming and right now me being fortunate enough to get some opportunities, there is a piece of me that's like, don't be an idiot. What happens if in two months, nothing's here, but that's me. Be, I've been an anxious Jewish guy my entire life. So that's that's always, also an, that's an anxious Jewish guy, but it's also an actor brain, right? Or anyone in, in the arts like so. that where it's gig work and like maybe the gig goes away. You could week. have, I feel very lucky and, but I'll always be like, well, what's my next thing? That is why um, I've always written and always continue to write because I can control my writing destiny. I can write a script, um, but for acting, I have to wait for someone to say, okay, we're ready to have you act. For me, I'm always writing one or two things because I can control that. Now I'm working nine to five, I have a job. My parents who are from the Bronx, I'm from the North Bronx, they're from the South Bronx. Every single day, 
they're working they're they're working every day and I'm watching that my dad is like in, in real estate and uh, my mom as a social uh, my mom is a Bronx school teacher me watching them uh, that's how I feel like so if I take a day off I feel like I'm being lazy so I always make sure that I always have writing to do every day when are you dropping your first nft <laughs> it's right now it's can I tell it's this face it's your it, Peter it's this face yours when you're listening yeah that's my first that's, NFT. That's, that's the winner. That's the winner. That's the correct answer. Ben Schwartz, from one anxious Jewish guy to another, this is a delight. Thank you for oh, coming Oh, this was an absolute pleasure. I was so excited to do this, man. Um, I'm sorry to disappoint you with, with what you actually got, but I'm glad you came on. You smiled a lot. I was hoping to get I a couple of Peter smiles and nailed it. I got a smile. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, sir. Thanks again to Ben Schwartz, a very polite star. He sent me a very nice note in advance uh, because we'd had to move that interview around and you don't often get polite notes from stars. Thank you, Ben Schwartz. Thank you also to Dylan Byers, who's a star in his own right. Speaking of stars, Travis and Jelani are my producers and editors. They are also rock stars. They're great. You guys are great, too, because you listen. Our sponsors are great. Everyone is great. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.